Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Zara MacDonald in conversation with author Lucia Osborne Crowley. In My Body Keeps Your Secrets, Osborne Crowley shares the voices of women, trans, and non-binary people from around the world, as well as their own deeply moving testimony. She writes of vulnerability, acceptance, and the reclaiming of ourselves, all in defiance of a world where atrocities are committed and survivors are repeatedly told to carry the weight of that shame. Crafted in a daring and immersive literary form, My Body Keeps Your Secrets is a necessary, elegant, and empathetic work that further establishes Lucia's credentials as a key intersectional feminist thinker for a new generation. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Reading's marketing assistant, Lucy Des. Firstly, I would just like to acknowledge that I am coming to you from the Woiwurrung people, and I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for the stories that they've given us and will continue to give us. It's going to be a great event. Hope you all enjoy it. And I'll pass on to Zara McDonald. Amazing. Thank you, Lucy. Lucia Osborne Crowley, well done on My Body Keeps Her Secrets. It is such a wonderful book and I am so bloody excited to be talking to you about it. I, I can't, I've been telling everybody about this book, so congratulations first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for being here with me. As I said just before, as we were waiting for people to come in, I'm a huge fan of yours and I feel very, very lucky to be talking to you about this book. So thank you. No, fandom is mutual. So this is going to be amazing. I said to you as well beforehand, I have that much I want to talk to you about this book. It's going to be ridiculous. I'm not going to be able to squeeze it all in, but we'll do our best. First thing I wanted to ask you though, you're in London right now. You mentioned to me just before that your family are in Sydney. You've been planning to come here to do the whole book launch. It's an incredibly personal book that you have just released. How are you doing being far from family, being far from Australia when you're putting something like this out into the world? Yeah, I mean, I thank you. It's such a such a nice um opening question. It is, I mean, this is a very personal book it's it makes this book makes you feel very vulnerable and and quite exposed much more so than I thought it would actually because I thought kind of you know this is my second book and I thought the second time around writing memoir blending with non-fiction would be a bit easier but you know I do think that because way back in January we planned that I would be doing this tour in Australia and therefore that I would be you know staying with my parents and being able to see my sister and my brothers every day and stuff and you know seeing my best friends like I grew up in Sydney and most of my best friends are there and and so I thought that I would be in that kind of very safe space you know with with all the people I love and the people I grew up with so it is strange now kind of releasing it without that support network and I do wish I was in Australia but again you know I I feel not not only for my sake but I just want to be with my family and friends at the moment because everyone is in Australia is having such a tough time and having to deal with lockdowns and you know all of the stress and anxiety that comes with that so yeah I wish I was there it definitely feels like a different process releasing the book not not being at home but I hope that I'll be able to get back soon and see everyone and be able to talk to people about this book I definitely wanted wanted to be around around all my people but also as I was saying to you before you know 
all of our plans at the moment. You know, everyone's having plans cancelled, and so it just seems to be part of the part of the thing these days. It is part of the thing, and I think this is a good kind of lead-in for us to acknowledge to people tonight that we probably should have a trigger warning on the content that we're speaking about because you do touch on sexual assault and the trauma associated with that. So just from the outset, if this is triggering for anybody, please just jump out or whatever you need to do. But, Lucia, I think the first place that I wanted to start with you today is one thing I've really adored learning about you is your history as a professional gymnast. I mean, not many people can say that they went to or they were training for two world championships. And I want to know, as as someone who, as from the really, really young age, was doing professional sport, how were you taught to consider your body? Was it a very clinical relationship that you had with your body? I train my body, therefore my body must perform in a way that I expect it to? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in some ways... I mean, this is such a complicated relationship that you have with your body as a child and as a teenager if you grow up as an athlete. And in some ways I'm very grateful for it because my body to me was purely functional. I didn't have any hang-ups about aesthetics, about how my body looked to certain people until I was much older. And so, you know, when I was a child and a teenager, all I cared about was, you know, how my muscles worked, how my flexibility was going, you know, whether I had any injuries apart, you know, those were the only things that mattered to me. And that was a really nice way to grow up in a lot of ways because I saw my body as being incredibly powerful and I knew that if I treated it right, then then it would kind of perform for me in the way that I wanted it to. When I was in high school, for example, I was around other people who were starting to take in all this messaging about teenage girl body which is such a kind of fraught place to live and I kind of had some time off from living in that place as an athlete because when I was training which was all the time I didn't think about those things so then when I got injured I was sexually assaulted when I was 15 and kind of ignored it um didn't tell anybody because I was very ashamed of it and even by that time I had already kind of metabolized a lot of messaging about you know, the police would ask me what I was wearing and people would blame me in all sorts of different ways. And I just immediately knew that it wasn't an option to tell anybody. And so I I let my kind of physical injuries from that assault heal and I went back to training thinking that I had kind of done it, that I'd kind of, you know, recovered from it and that was that. But it had this really strange effect on my ability as an athlete because I kind of quite literally, like, lost my balance my physical relationship to the world had been very disrupted because of this very dangerous event and also because of the injuries that I had. So I started injuring myself all the time, doing things that I could I could usually do in my sleep, you know, like really, really easy stuff. Um, and I would fall and I was injuring myself all over the place. And I didn't know why, because I was so obsessed with not thinking about the rape that I just thought, I don't know, you know, because as a gymnast, you... You, you're taught very young that you kind of have a limited lifespan. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm 15. Maybe I maybe I just have to retire. You know, maybe I'm just not, not any good anymore yeah. and I'm too old or something. And kind of ignoring, ignoring the signs that my body was giving me about not being able to perform these tricks anymore led to a, a catastrophic injury, which then ended my career. So I was in tryouts for my second world championships when that happened. I said to the kind of national medical professional I said oh well I've got to go to worlds in Colombia in four months so like we just have to make sure 
that this ankle injury is is um, all dealt with by then. And he was like, no, you're never going to run again. Like you, you're definitely not going to anything in four months and probably ever again. Literally overnight, I went from being an athlete to being someone who couldn't walk and I was on crutches for eight months. And so really quickly I had this kind of induction into what it was like to be a teenage girl outside of that context. And so it's a really interesting framework to have. And, you know, it's quite different from the way other people experience that teenage girlhood of, you know, becoming ashamed of your body and getting all this messaging from the world about how you should look. Because most people, it kind of comes in in increments and it comes in so slowly that you don't even notice it. And I had this really weird thing where it kind of happened overnight. And then I was like, oh, my body can't do its its thing anymore, the thing that I've always valued it for. So now I guess I'll have to see what other people value their bodies for. And what I found out was, you know, pretty grim because when you're that age, people expect all, you know, you to be treating your body awfully in order to kind of live up to aesthetic and body image standards. What I find so remarkable about this book, and I think any woman who has experienced any form of chronic illness, to be honest, of any kind, would be very blown away by the link between the mind and the body and trauma and the body. And you just, I mean, spoke to that before, that after being assaulted at the age of 15, you know, you were off kilter when you were doing your gymnastics and that did result in pain. But more than that, you write in the book that you were experiencing such searing pain in the sort of 10 years after the attack that doctors eventually diagnosed you after many, many tests. I imagine many women listening to this will appreciate that experience of trying to be diagnosed with something with endo and Crohn's disease. How long did it take you to realise that that pain you were experiencing was linked or could be linked to your trauma from that attack at 15? Yeah, so it literally took me a decade. And that, I think, really speaks to how determined I was uh, to not think about that assault because, you know, I was so convinced that my brain was powerful enough to just kind of erase this from my history. And so, for example, I was first hospitalised with pain when I was 16 uh, and then I kept ending up back in hospital because I'd, I'd get these abdominal pains and I'd lose consciousness and I'd vomit and, you know, all this other weird stuff was happening. And even though it was abdominal pain and, you know, I used to have these moments where I was like, I felt this pain before. There was one night in my life when I felt this kind of pain before. But I would immediately put that to one side and say, I, yeah, I don't want to think about that. So the connection was there and there were moments where I could feel the pain was similar, but I completely ignored it. And then when I was about 17, I was in emergency and I was on loads of morphine and a Crohn's doctor came in. So they suspected I had Crohn's immediately, but I didn't. This was in 2010. I didn't get that diagnosis until 2015 because the first tests were kind of inconclusive. But this Crohn's doctor, who immediately thought this person has Crohn's disease, came in to see me and said, have you ever been sexually assaulted? And I just said, I just lied because, I, you know, I didn't want to tell anyone about it. And, and he, I think looking back on it now, probably could tell that I was lying. And so he said, okay, because just so you know, if you had, we now know that that physical trauma can lead people to develop Crohn's disease. And so, you know, I had, I had even been told when I was 17, but I, again, completely, I remember I went home from hospital and I was like, I'm never thinking about that again. You know, that I'm never thinking about that conversation again. 
And that worked for 10 years. I genuinely didn't think about that conversation. And then when I was 25, I got much, much sicker than I had ever been. Both my endo and my Crohn's were flaring up at the same time. So this is what they always say about trauma is sometimes if you get triggered by something, you will start getting kind of invasive thoughts and nightmares and all that kind of thing. And that started happening at the same time. And it all kind of swirled into one episode of illness where I was in hospital, in and out of hospital for months and I really couldn't get a hold of myself. Like I, I couldn't get a hold of my health and I was um, finishing a law degree at the time and I was really excited to become a lawyer and I just realised I would do anything to get better, including the one thing I swore to myself I would never do, which is tell someone that I was assaulted. And so it just got to this point where it was almost like I had run out of other options. It wasn't like I got up one day and I was like, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to tell, you know, I'm going to make this disclosure. I literally just decided that I didn't have any other choice. And I told my doctor, I told my Crohn's doctor and my endo doctor, and they both said like, yep, that makes sense to us. Here's all this research. Here's all the evidence that, you know, that kind of trauma can lead to these chronic pain conditions and particularly autoimmune conditions. And then, you know, I said to one of them, I was like, you know, a doctor said this to me when I was 17 and and I just I just wasn't ready to hear it. And they were like, yeah, well, that makes sense, you know, and this is why this is why I think it's so important to talk about it more because then maybe people will be able to answer that question honestly the first time it's asked rather than what I did, which was say nothing for so long. One thing that was very clarifying to read, I think, was when you included this research done by a psychologist called Gabor Mate. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. And Mate basically argues that perfectionism, overachieving, addiction, anxiety, all of these traits can eventually make us sick. And Mm -hmm. you wrote about this research really beautifully to be like, it's not about victim blaming people that have chronic illnesses, but to explain that there are a million different reasons why we develop them. And then there was this also this point that you had, right, where you said you thought you could challenge your mind to erase your assault. And I'm like, surely this is all linked, right, that we feel so much shame, perhaps as women, because we're so perfectionistic almost about trauma. Like you have this perspective of being like, I should be able to fix this myself. Did you see this in your own experience and feel this? Oh, absolutely. And the thing about Mate's research that I absolutely love is that he's able to use his own scientific studies to connect all of these things together that I would never have connected. So basically what he says is that trauma usually leads us to feel ashamed and feelings of shame are very, very hard for us to cope with, kind of by definition, right? So we come up with all these behaviours in order to not feel shame which is a very, very, very human response to shame. You know, it is, in fact, the most human response to shame is to try and kind of get it out of your system somehow. And what he says, and this is such a big kind of aha moment for me, that the behaviours that we develop out of shame are things that can often make us sick. And he said that can look as different as the perfectionist in the boardroom and the addict in, in the alley. And so... He was basically saying that, like, the behaviours that we develop to deal with shame can be so, so, so different, but they all are ways to suppress this very, very intense emotion that's very hard to cope with. So for me, you know, and I always thought 
all my behaviors were very healthy. I mean, that sounds very arrogant, but I no, genuinely but you, do. A lot of us do. Yeah. And I used to think, you know, I did so well in school and I always kind of, I ticked all the boxes, you know, and I had multiple jobs at once and I was so proud of how busy I was. Like I was just, you know, there was one point where I was working full-time as a journalist and teaching politics at Sydney Uni and studying law at night. And I thought that this was like the, the best achievement of my life. But what that in fact is, is just a version of kind of numbing shame, which is to try and outrun yourself and make yourself as busy as possible. And also to kind of acquire these external markers of success that can fight the kind of voice that trauma leaves you with, which was, I invited this bad thing into my life somehow. There is something wrong with me. You know, I've done something bad in order to attract violence or shame or whatever it is. And so, you know, we have all these different patterns of behaviour and I never would have recognised that as an unhealthy behaviour if I hadn't read Mate's work. And I used to have people say to me all the time, you do too much, you don't sleep enough, you drink too much coffee, blah, 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 this is going to make you sick. And I would always be kind of like, well, you know, that's not true and also I need to do it. You know, I'm just someone who really needs to be doing stuff all the time. And what he says is that through absolutely no fault of our own, we develop these habits to kind of escape trauma and shame and they, all these things can contribute to autoimmune illnesses, which, as you said, is absolutely not to say it's the fault of the person who's, who's doing those things or living those lifestyles because it's not. You know, it's, it's, it's not even a choice at that point. We don't even know that we're choosing certain things over others because of the trauma that we've experienced. You know, I genuinely just used to think like, I don't actually need sleep. Like I'm just not a person who needs it. Like I'm just some sort of, yeah, exactly. Which was never true. And of course, not sleeping ever because you're staying up all night studying or whatever it is, is never going to be good for your immune system because sleep is very important for the immune system. And my immune system was already dysfunctioning. So all of those habits kind of build on each other and they all connect to trauma. And I just didn't know that. Even when I had figured out that trauma is connected to my deep feelings of unworthiness and also to my abdominal pain, it was still another couple of years before I made this connection to all these other parts of life that are also connected to trauma and shame. And that can also be bad for our physical health, even though, as I said, we're not we're not choosing to be doing things that are bad for our health. It's just that if we are suffering from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, those habits are really helpful and we all use them. There's a stat in your book that says something like 70% of patients with long-term chronic pain conditions are women or non-binary people. And this stat blew me away, but then I started to look around my own life and I was like, actually, that feels pretty bang on. And I mean, I want to know your opinion on this. Like this has to be about shame, right? That women and Mm non-binary people internalize shame in a way that men just simply aren't taught to. Exactly. And I think, I think that is it. I think that can account for so much of that statistic. A couple of things. Women are much, much, much more likely to be victims of the kind of violence that we are taught to be ashamed of. So sexual violence being key one. And also young girls are much more likely to be abused as children. And, you know, if you if you look at that spectrum of violence, the things that we are told not to talk about, they mostly happen to uh, women, girls and 
people of all marginalised genders. So I think that's the first thing, is that these things happen that we're taught not to talk about. And then we also live in a world where we can't talk about those things. So we don't tell our doctors, we don't tell our parents, we don't tell our friends. And even when we do, those people are often not equipped to handle those disclosures. So it seems to me to start a process of kind of cumulative shame building where, you know, the first thing happens and then we can't talk about that thing. And so the not talking about it kind of reinforces this feeling that trauma leaves us with, which is, you know, psychiatric underlying for what I'm saying about trauma leaving us with this feeling that we've done something wrong is often when another person kind of overpowers us or or does something that degrades our humanity, we find it very hard to see other people as kind of bad or evil and we're much more likely to assume that it's us who's bad or evil and has done something to cause that thing to happen. So that's what the brain kind of naturally does. And then if you live in a world that literally says on TV and on the radio and stuff that girls invite their own sexual assault by walking home in the dark or, you know, walking through a park late at night then those feelings that you have are quite literally being reinforced by people in power. And so then it becomes less and less likely that you'll be able to get help and and therefore more and more likely that 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 trauma will result in long-term chronic pain conditions or autoimmune conditions. So the other thing is, and I discovered this statistic after writing the book, so 70% of people with chronic pain are women or people of marginalised genders. 80% of people with autoimmune conditions are women or people of marginalised gender. So that is huge. And autoimmune conditions, we know, and as you said so well at the beginning, these things can come from lots of different things and I will never say definitively this disorder or this pain comes from this experience because there's so many causal factors that lead to these things happening. But we know that going through trauma activates your fight or flight system. Your fight or flight system is a a part of the brain that operates in fear and danger. And if you don't get treated for something that has happened, so if you don't, you know, go to a doctor or go to a hospital or something like that, what can happen is that your fight or flight system becomes uh, disordered and you can enter this chronic state of fight or flight, which most of us just experience as like, everyday stress you know it it feels like stress or panic or anxiety but it can actually be the brain going into this fight or flight mode multiple times a day and when that happens the immune system basically has to stop because the body is focusing on running away if that keeps happening especially for three years five years ten years the immune system then stops working properly because it cannot regulate itself properly when you're going into this fear response all the time. And that's what they think then leads to autoimmune disorders. And so, you know, there is a very real connection between living in fear and eventually developing something like MS or lupus or chronic migraines or Crohn's. And, you know, doctors now think that they're about to classify endometriosis as an autoimmune condition. So that's a kind of emerging thing as well. It is not surprising that 80% of people who develop autoimmune conditions are women. And the same thing with pain is the brain getting stuck in a pain response. So it's two things. It is the actual damaged tissue that causes the pain and then it's the brain's response to that pain. And if the pain gets overridden or ignored, for example, if you, like me, 
go into hospital once every few weeks and they tell you that you just like get chlamydia every two weeks. And I'm like, why? You know, every every chlamydia test came back negative. And also I just wanted to say to them, like, do you not think, I don't, you know, it's just, it was just so, so frustrating. And it meant that my pain was never treated because they just said, oh, you've got an STI again. Stop it. You know, go home. Stop being, stop being a 19-year-old girl. This is on you. And the more it gets ignored and overridden, the more your brain is going to try and send you more pain signals and say, hey, pay attention to this, like something's wrong. But if you then go to a doctor and say, hey, pay attention to this, something's wrong, and a doctor says, no, it's not, you know, you're actually fine, go home, the pain signals are going to get stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's what leads to chronic pain. So both of those things are, first, they are physical, and then there's a structural societal element which makes them chronic as well as being physical disorders, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think what's so clarifying but also so hard to hear in these sort of scenarios is like how is this the first time that I'm making these connections? Like how is this the first time that we're having a conversation about why there is such a large proportion of women and non-binary people experiencing these things? That just completely blows my mind. One thing that you write about a lot through the course of this book as you interview so many different people is this concept of shame transmission and how it can eventually make us sick. For those who are here tonight who haven't read the book yet, can you define shame transmission for them? Yeah, yeah, of course. So in this book I interview 100 people, um, women, trans and non-binary people, and all I said was if anyone wants to talk to me about their body and trauma and shame, please, you know, talk to me for this book. And so I did two years' worth of interviews with people who were telling me these stories, and what kept coming out of it was this feeling of shame becoming chronic. So the other thing that Joseph Berger, who's who's another psychiatrist, says, he talks about chronic shame in the same way we talk about chronic pain, which is also similar to what I was just saying about chronic fight-or-flight response. So this sense of shame that rather than just being in response to one event becomes something that we go to, that we go back to again and again and again, and it becomes part of our our wiring, part of our brain chemistry. And so, you know, we often compare shame and guilt and we think they're the same thing, but guilt is a very internal emotion that says, I have done something that doesn't align with my values, so I've hurt my friend or something. I've hurt my partner. Whereas shame comes from the outside. Shame is a societal emotion. It's something that's put onto us by others. So it's a completely inorganic feeling. So if you think about, you know, the good example of this is I felt ashamed of my sexual assault. You know, I I now know 100, with 100% certainty that I didn't do anything wrong and that there was no failure of mine that caused that assault. But shame is this emotion that's put on you where it doesn't actually matter what your own personal uh, values are. You feel that sense of I've done something wrong here. This is a moral failure. So when I first read about shame transmission, it was through a Queensland author called Mira Atkinson, and she writes that when someone does a shameless act like a violent assault or a rape or something like that, shame you know, demands to be dealt with and carried. And the perpetrator in those situations, most of the time, is not willing to carry that shame. So it's transmitted to the victim. And the victim then, as I was saying before, the victim's brain's response is, I have done something to deserve this. And then that's kind of reinforced by society. So there's a kind of transmission that happens there where 
someone does something to you and you come out of that thinking, I have done something bad. And then after the first shame transmission, there are kind of lots of small and big ways that shame continues to be transmitted to us all the time. So, you know, little comments about body image or, you know, anything like that reinforces this sense of I don't belong in the world. You know, I'm not right. There is something wrong with me. And then that feeling just becomes more and more and more powerful until it can become chronic. And then it can kind of take over our identities and our personalities as it certainly did for me. And so that I think, again, is something that I had never thought about. You know, I had never, ever thought that these things that I thought were wrong with me might actually be things that are wrong with society, you know, and in fact, the shame belongs to the person who made who made me feel like my body wasn't right. That's the person who's done something wrong in that situation. But because we teach certain people and women and people of marginalised genders historically and structurally are most likely to be the victims of this, we teach some people every single day that there's something not right about them. It feels very much like the irony of experiencing shame, right? Because I think you just touched on it before. It's like you often feel shame about feeling shame. Like yeah. it's one thing to say I was internalizing so much shame that eventually I think that it made me sick. But like for anyone listening to this now who is experiencing shame for any reason or another, how do you actually meaningfully fight shame? Like it feels like this very amorphous thing where it's like I'm internalizing this, but how do I yeah. get it out of me? Yeah, well, you know, this is what I found so interesting about doing the reporting for this book and the research for this book is I was talking to all these people who have never met each other before and who sometimes were telling these stories for the first time in their lives. So I was the first person to ever hear this. And then, you know, all the stories were completely different and I did that kind of by design. I really wanted lots of different experiences to kind of prove this thing that whatever transmits shame to us, those can be a whole variety of different things, but the feelings that we are left with are the same. So I was talking to all these people separately and they were all feeling the same thing, you know, and they would even use the same words. They were kind of echoing each other, even though they could, you know, some of them are in Australia and some of them in Ireland, you know, they'll, they'll probably never meet each other and they feel so alone in these feelings, but they're all feeling the same thing at the same time. And I think that's a really, really important thing for us all to kind of know is that shame makes us feel isolated, but we all feel it. And so the answer, I think, to your question is the best way to fight shame is through empathy and through being able to have a kind of safe environment in which to express your shame. I mean, shame depends on silence and isolation you know that's where it does its best work you know but if you can reach out to someone and say I feel ashamed you know I'm in lockdown and I'm really worried about how I look or all my uh, historical eating disorder habits are coming back because I'm in lockdown and I don't have control over food and things in the same way if you can just reach out to someone and say that and they can say to you either me too which is, you know, one of the most powerful ways to fight shame. Or I see you, I understand you, I love you, this is not a failure of yours, you know, you've done nothing wrong, it's completely understandable that you're struggling with these things. I mean, shame just dies in that scenario because you've got someone there as a compassionate witness and I think, like, I mean, Brene Brown says this and she's she's researched shame for two decades now and this was before 
the current iteration of the Me Too movement, she said when she does focus groups and all of her qualitative research, she said the one thing, two most powerful words when someone is in a shame spiral are Me Too. You know, so I think the answer is just to talk about things more that we're not supposed to talk about and do it again and again and again. And I think not only doing it ourselves because, you know, sometimes that's really hard and also we might not have things that we want to disclose at certain times, but there is a way to live in the world where you can signal to the people around you that you are always open to those conversations. So you don't have to be the one disclosing all the time. You don't have to be going around saying like, hey, I'm ashamed of this. Like, do you want to hear about it? It can be just like showing up for people every day and asking those little follow-up questions that signal to someone that you're open to it, that you're willing to listen. You know, if everybody does that, then those conversations will happen more and more and more. I think this was actually the biggest aha moment for me and I highlighted it straight away. And I'm actually not a highlighter in books, Lucia, so this is like <laughs> it props to you. But the, I think when you said that the way to fight shame is through language and through empathy. And when I was younger, I experienced vaginismus and I didn't speak about it ever and I never even knew how to pronounce the word for about five years, which is ridiculous when it's a condition that I have because I clearly never said it out loud. And then I decided to, after maybe seven years, talk about it on a podcast and I had to tell my new partner about it. And I was enveloped at that time by the podcast community and by my partner. And a month or so later, the pain almost completely subsided. And I've never been able to explain that to anybody who's been able to ask. In fact, I've almost been embarrassed by that to be like, how do I explain to people that I don't experience this pain anymore? And the minute you wrote that, I was like, that's it. Like it was language and then it was empathy. Does that story ring true for you? Oh my God, absolutely. You know, and that is something that all of these people said to me is that like, if you have empathy and you have language, and as you said, you know, if we've never said something out loud before, we don't have the tools to kind of go to our doctor and say, I think I have vaginismus. You know, if you've never even heard of it before, which was the case until even a couple of years ago, it was not talked about ever. And if you don't have those two things, then no matter what you do, you just don't have the tools to crawl out from under shame, you know. And, you know, we know that pain is linked to feelings of fear and trauma and things like that. And pain can come from a a lot of different places. But I know so many people who, as soon as they were able to talk to a partner about the pain they had or talk to friends about the pain they had, the pain eased. And there are research researchers and doctors who will say like yes we hear this all the time and it is that thing it's that you know when you have community and when you have people who provide you a safe space in which to talk about what you're experiencing then that shame element is immediately vanquished because you know as we've said it only survives when you're experiencing it on your own and so once that shame element is taken out your brain chemistry changes you know and that means that your pain response will change and it rings true with everyone I spoke to for this book. Amongst everyone you spoke to in this book, you spoke to 100 different people for yep. to tell this story. Is there a story that's really, really stuck with you the most? That's a really, really good question. Um, there is one story that really stuck with me because this is someone that my path had crossed with already and I hadn't realised it, so I had person in this book who was sexually abused by their high school teacher for years and years and then decided after sharing this story for the first time 
with their therapist, but then decided that they wanted to go to the police. And this person was arrested and their first court hearing was scheduled and this person thought, you know, what am I going to do on this day to distract myself? And um, Brie Lee, who's one of my favourite writers, was speaking at Adelaide Writers' Festival that day and I was also at that event, but this person knew about Brie and had read her books but didn't know anything about me. So I went there to see Brie on the day that her perpetrator was, you know, in court for the first time and was at that event and that made her feel much better and then she kind of she got this phone call right before I was going to sign her book so we kind of didn't end up meeting but she was on the phone uh hearing about how this day in court had gone and then when I put this call out she approached me and she told me about how important that day was for her and you know I carry so much shame still you know it's a process I'm I'm working on it but I still feel ashamed a lot I feel ashamed about being vulnerable in public and I still sometimes feel ashamed about this assault and, you know, hearing things like that from her, that, that just being at that event was helpful for, for her on a day where she was, you know, experiencing symptoms of her own trauma, obviously, because it was such a significant day. That really meant something to me. And it just, I don't know, it's, it said something to me about just the more we do this, the more likely yeah. it is that someone will hear that conversation and that it will mean something to them. And it, I think about that when I don't want to kind of keep going, you know, when I don't want to keep talking about this and I just want to watch Love Island for the rest of my life. And so that story, I mean, all of these stories are hugely meaningful to me, but just because there was this weird coincidental yeah. meeting between her and I, um, I always think about that when I think I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> there is so much of you in this book and I can't imagine how incredibly sort of conflicting that must be for you to be like, having to talk about it all the time and how tiring that must be. So when it comes to your own healing, like what has been the biggest part of your own healing? I mean, based off what you just said, would it would it be right for me to assume it would be reading other people's works and talking to other people about these kinds of things? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it is those two things in equal measure. Firstly, it's reading other people's work and that is because, you know, I think so much of the value of literature and of reading has really hit home to me in the last few years, even though, you know, I was one of those kids who read all the time. I didn't understand how powerful it was until I was kind of so vulnerable and so afraid of what I was trying to face that books were the safest place for me because they don't require anything of you. You know, if you're in a conversation with someone, then you have to deal with that person's reactions to what you're saying. But if you're sitting and reading a book, for me, it just feels yeah, like the safest space because the person who's written that book is not asking you to respond in real time, um, is not asking you to say anything, and I find that incredibly helpful. So, you know, Bree's book is a good example, Eggshell Skull. I don't know that there's a world in which I made that first disclosure to my doctors without having read that book because I just sat with it and I read it three times in a row and there were things in it that made sense to me. And I had that moment for the first time where I was like, oh, this abuse has actually affected me. So that's one thing. And then the more that I was able to do that, the more I became able to speak to other people about it. And then that has then become an equally important part of my own healing, which is that I do find it hard to talk about these things and I find it hard to write about these things, but doing that opens up these conversations to me. You know, it, it means that people can come to me and talk 
talk to me about things and people email me about things and we will get on a Zoom and talk about these things and that is so helpful to me because it it reinforces the fact that, you know, all these things are real and are valid and that we're all feeling them. And so those two things, exactly what you identified, those two things are the most helpful things for me. My last question for you, I read this tremendous endorsement of the book that said, and I wish I remembered who said it, but it said, if there is an opposite to gaslighting, this book is it. And I thought that's so bang on, like this book is an opposite to gaslighting. Did you write this book with that in mind as almost like an antidote to all the gaslighting that you probably experienced, I imagine you experienced from the age of 15 all the way through? Absolutely. And and gaslighting is shame, right? You know, those two, it's it's almost synonymous. Like gaslighting is kind of shame's biggest soldier. You know, all these people out there saying your world is not real, your experience is not real, your pain is not real. All of the ways that we, you know, experience gaslighting, that's all linked to shame. And then we go home and we feel more alone and we feel more isolated and we also feel like we're making things up or, you know, like we're insane, and that leads to more shame. So, yeah, I think gaslighting and shame are really, really closely linked to one another. And um, I I also, I love that endorsement, and it made me so happy to read that because I think that is what I set out to do, is to write something that was a bit of an antidote to that. So the fact that that, yeah, was recognised really means a lot to me. Lucia, thank you, not just for tonight, but for writing this incredible book. Every time I post about this book or talk about this book, unanimously people respond to me and say this book is incredible. It took incredible amounts of courage but also research and time and energy and I'm so glad that it's out in the world because, as I said, I was highlighting and having aha moments all the way through it so I can't imagine how everybody else is going to experience this book too. Well, thank you. And Zara, thank you so much for all those brilliant questions and for reading the book and for speaking so generously to me about it. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for being here. It's so nice to all be together in one way or another. Isn't it? I think we're throwing to Lucy now. Lucy, I'd like to thank everyone so much for coming Um, on behalf of Ellen and Unwin and Readings. um, Thank you. What a wonderful event. All the emotions running very high at the moment, I'm sure. So great. Thank you both to Zara and to Lucia for joining us. And have a lovely night, everyone. Stay safe. Thank Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks Thanks for being with us. Bye. Bye. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.